From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Good afternoon and thanks so much for being with us on this Thursday and the Thursday leading into a long weekend with BC Day just around the corner. A lot of people will be heading out, hitting the open road. My guess is there will also be people who are maybe opting for that road trip that doesn't include BC ferries so you don't have to deal with the chaos, the waiting, making sure you get there in time for your reservation. But that could mean more people driving, more people burning gas. Well, just in time for the long weekend, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation has released the 2023 edition of its annual Gas Tax Honesty Report. And joining us to talk more about this is Carson Binda, BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Carson, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thanks so much for taking the time to have a chat with me today. Well, 25 years, your group has been putting this gas tax honesty report together. So let's go through some of the findings. But before we do, can you explain a little bit what specifically is this report looking at? Sure. So what our report does is it compares the total taxes people pay on a uh, a litre of gasoline and a 64-litre fill-up across the country. So we look at every province and the major municipalities that charge uh, additional and higher taxes above and beyond those provincial taxes, and we rank them. We show uh, taxpayers exactly how much tax they're being charged every single time they fill up their, uh, their car to drive to work or school. And looking at the numbers this year, I don't think anybody living in Vancouver or Victoria will be surprised to learn that those two cities are pretty well at the top of the list. Yeah, Vancouver and Victoria are both uh, significantly higher than any other municipalities, any other provinces in the country. So for drivers in, uh, in Vancouver, they're paying about $50 every time they fill up their car just in taxes. In Victoria, where I am right now, they're paying about $45 in taxes every single time they fill up their car. So that's a lot of money. With $45, you can buy a chicken dinner with all the fixings for a family of four. We actually went to the grocery store and did that um, to see how far that money would take us. So government taxes on gasoline right now are not only inflationary, but they're making life very difficult for British Columbians across the province who are already struggling with cost of living. And looking at, uh, I think it's uh, page five of the report, I'm wondering if you can uh, talk more, and, and you kind of touched on this when you, when you talked about those numbers, but this ranks the gas price and the gas tax ranking and the tax portion, uh, where even in Vancouver, I was surprised that Vancouver's is higher than uh, Va- uh, Victoria when we look at the gas price ranking at 40%, the tax portion to 36% in Victoria. What makes up for that difference? Yeah, so when we talk about taxes, the big difference between Vancouver and Victoria are the transit taxes. Both municipalities have transit taxes that go to uh, BC Transit in Victoria and TransLink over in Vancouver, but they're drastically different. In Vancouver, drivers are paying about 18.5 cents per litre of gasoline uh, towards the TransLink tax, whereas in Victoria, they're paying about 5.5 cents towards BC Transit. So that big 18.5 cent per litre transit tax is really the thing that pushes Vancouver above and beyond uh, Victoria and the rest of the province. 
Uh, some other areas were pretty close. If you look at Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, the tax portion there, 38%, 39% as well. Uh, breaking out Montreal, 39%. Much lower in some other provinces, whether it's Manitoba at 29, Alberta at 22. And what is it again that's causing such the difference there? Yeah, so the big thing that sets BC apart from the other provinces is how much we're charging in the two provincial carbon taxes. So we've got the first provincial carbon tax, which costs drivers uh, about 14 cents per litre. And then we also have a second provincial carbon tax, which is buried in clean fuel regulations, that costs drivers an additional 17 cents per litre every time they fill up. So it's the double whammy of those two carbon taxes, along with the transit taxes, that makes gas so unaffordable in in BC and specifically in Vancouver and Victoria. You mentioned the carbon tax as well and the the federal carbon tax increasing since last year. So what kind of changes have we seen with that as well if we look at that year over year? Yeah, so if you know, it's like the reverse of the law of gravity. Taxes only go up, it seems, especially in Canada right now. Um, in BC, we don't pay into the federal carbon tax because our provincial government has such stringent carbon taxes uh, that go above and beyond the uh, the federal minimum. We don't pay that federal uh, that federal carbon tax, but we do pay even more money in provincial carbon taxes. What that means, and those are going up year on year as well. So gas is only going to keep getting more unaffordable as government keeps on tacking on these ever unaffordable taxes. And I know you you pointed this out as well, and this is part of the report, and this won't come as a surprise to people, I'm sure, but it is a little bit annoying when you look at the minimum carbon tax on the federal, from the federal government, but with the exception of Quebec. That's right. Uh, Trudeau's government cut a special deal with the, uh, with the Premier of Quebec that allows them to pay about 9.9 cents per litre of gasoline in taxes compared to about 14 cents in the rest of the country. So, frankly, it's wrong that Quebec is getting a special deal on the carbon tax. It's ridiculous to think that uh, cars in Quebec pollute less than cars in B.C. or Saskatchewan or Manitoba. But that's exactly what the Trudeau government is doing. Um, And it's, it's deeply wrong for Quebec to be getting that special deal on the carbon tax. One of the issues, I know this has come up before as well, and if, if it doesn't hurt enough just looking at the numbers of the taxes, but the fact that you are charged one of the taxes on top of the other tax, and it might not seem like a lot of money, but as you mentioned, if you're filling up, it's so much per tank. How much are people spending in paying taxes on top of taxes? Yeah, so the federal sales tax in Vancouver is about 9.3 cents a litre, and that's calculated as a percentage of the cost of the gasoline, including all of the other taxes. So that's a really good example of tax on tax that is frankly wrong. There's no reason government should be taxing or calculating the taxes on goods after all the other taxes have already been leveled. It creates a double tax. Um, which is deeply painful for a lot of British Columbians. And across most of BC, it, it hovers around 2 or $3, that tax on tax. Um, but it causes a lot, of, a lot of pain. I mean, most families, we know about one in five families, are skipping meals to save money. 
Um, we know that food banks across the province are seeing record-breaking demand right now. So right now is truly a time when every dollar counts for those families that are just scraping by. Right. And, and like you said, too, it, it, it's around $2. And I think the numbers that you showed, if we look at the city of Vancouver with all of the other taxes, if it comes in just north of $2 per fill up, again, it's not something that you see. It's not busted out it's on the receipt, but it does all add up. And that's not even a tax on a, a particular item or a particular thing. That is purely just on the other tax. Yeah, you're paying taxes on the taxes you're already paying. It, it really is a head shaker of how government can justify that. Um, and that's a federal government sales tax. So that's something that folks across the country are experiencing. And it's, it's deeply, deeply wrong for the Trudeau government to be forcing drivers to pay tax on tax. Looking ahead, uh, this report takes us all the way uh, to uh, looking what things might be like in 2030, which isn't that that far away. What does it look like? Yeah, um, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't have the report open in front of me right now, but those taxes are only going to go up. And by 2030, drivers in British Columbia are going to be paying even more money than they already are on unaffordable gas taxes. And it's important to know that we've heard from the parliamentary budget officer, the federal parliamentary budget officer, these carbon taxes don't have an impact, a meaningful impact on the environment or on climate change. So this is a tax plan by the Trudeau and EB government. It's not an, uh, an environmental plan. Carson, it's always great to, to chat with you. Thank you so much for joining us and for sharing the report with us today. Absolutely, Jill. Thank you so much for having me on and, uh, and helping raise awareness about these excessive taxes that British Columbians are paying. The Vancouver Park Board is urging people to take extreme care in the city's parks, especially in Stanley Park, where there is an extreme fire risk. The board saying that conditions in that park are extremely dry, heading into what is typically the hottest month of the year. And that risk is even more so because of the ongoing looper moth infestation. And that has had an impact on up to one in five trees in the park, making them more susceptible to fires. The board says these moths have had a more severe impact in recent years because of their lifespans changing and in part because of climate change. So what else can be done to make sure the Stanley Park area is protected? Well, a local resident has started a change.org petition that is trying to address just that. And Jillian McGuire joins me now to talk more about this. Jillian, thank you so much for being here. Oh, hi, Jill. Uh, Thanks for having me. So you started a petition. What are you asking for? I'm asking for traffic, car traffic, to be halted through the park until this serious drought is over, Um, which I guess whenever we get rain, so hopefully October, although last I think it was last year, we we were still in drought at the end of October. Um, Because, I mean, I've used the park a fair bit, uh, especially when there was no traffic during COVID. And it was substantially cooler in there now when they didn't have traffic going through. Now, if you go through the park, like on the road, there's bumper to bumper traffic a lot of the time. And it's very hot. Um, I'd say it's like five degrees hotter now uh, with the combustion engines going through the um, going through the the park. Um, There also have been uh, reports of people throwing cigarette butts out of windows. Now, I know that um, most of us here in uh, 
in you know uh, in so-called British Columbia um, were were trained not to throw cigarette butts out of the window because we were in a forest. But we get a lot of people here from all over the world who may not have um, that culture so ingrained in them, and it could just take one um, you know one cigarette butt thrown out the window to light the whole park on fire. Um, now I have just been reading the book Fire Weather by uh, John Viant. And that's an examination of uh, the Fort McMurray fires and what happens when, um, you know, when a forest like this goes on fire with all of these dead trees, which are just kindling for a fire, is it spits um, out and then fires then crop up all over the city. So, um, you know, I, I, I have speak, spoken to John about this, um, that a Stanley Park fire has the potential, uh, and he does expect it to go um on fire in under 10 years because of the the dryness of it, unless we do something. Now, so a fire in Stanley Park could light the whole city on fire. Um, What also we see happening with these fires is when they get into um, houses, into apartment buildings, because a lot of the furnishings are new petroleum-based products, uh, they actually um, create almost bombs. So we could lose the whole city if if Stanley Park goes on fire. So, um, yeah, it would be great if we could get the car traffic halted and maybe just have a bus service going through, uh, going through the park so people could access the services. And have you had much feedback in that? So we've certainly been talking about Stanley Park for quite some time uh, about traffic mm-hmm. and using the park, especially because of the pandemic. And uh, there was a lot of pushback even going down to one yeah. lane of traffic. So have you had much feedback? Um, I, you know, most, I mean, I guess, you know, I'm in a position where I'm preaching to the converted. Most of the people that I speak to, uh, we are, are, are pretty climate literate. And, um, you know, I would absolutely forego the convenience of driving through a park in order to save the entire city. Um, <laughs> I don't know what else to say about that, right? Like, we're actually trying to save the city from burning down. Right. I, I mean, I get what you're saying, but isn't that a little bit, it almost seems a bit alarmist that a fire in Stanley Park would, would burn down the entire city and that there have been fires yeah. in Stanley Park and fire crews have put them out in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So right now, as you know, we're in an unprecedented uh, drought in Stanley Park and with the increase in dead trees. Um, I'm not a fire expert, but I have spoken to a number of climate scientists about this. And there is a difference when you have a forest go on fire right next to a city. And this is exactly what happened in the case of Fort McMurray. So I would encourage like a little bit of reading um, on this. Um, fire weather goes through the fire in, uh, in um, Fort McMurray. Um, and when a forest does butt up, next to a city, it's different. So putting out out a house fire in the middle of a city is different than putting out a forest fire. The way forest fires work is they they spit out like large sparks um, that then get displaced all over in different places. And and fire actually sprouts up all over the place. And if you just talk to any um, firefighter who's worked in um, in a forest fire situation, they'll confirm that that's the reality. So it's not that the, there's going to be a wall of fire that comes from Stanley Park, but there'll be little spot fires throughout the city that are lighting up neighborhoods going on fire. Um, and then, you know, fire crews then having to, to, to find those fires. The other thing that's um, 
that's challenging is that uh, um, uh, city fire crews are not the same as forest fire crews and so don't have that same experience and training. So I think until we can get that uh, that training, that experience, um, and I, the, the board, the Parks Board has passed uh, a motion to deal with a lot of the, um, the dead trees in Stanley Park starting in September. Um, so this might be, you know, hopefully this kind of thing can be a temporary thing until they can get this risk under control. And I don't know. I mean, I think I think we could deal with a temporary inconvenience in order to save the parks that we love. Right. And the city that we love, yeah. Do you think, though, um, if we only look at traffic, and I get what you're saying, that having cars in there can be warmer, but uh, Vancouver police were just talking about the fact that somebody deliberately set a fire near Second Beach. Uh, there are people living mm-hmm. in Stanley Park. It seems like the yeah. risk of fire uh, could very well, very well come from, from a different source, not from somebody in a vehicle. So shouldn't oh, we also be oh, looking at absolutely. that? Oh, absolutely. And we do have laws against setting fires in the park. Right. So that is a police issue. Um, And, you know, if I could have a petition to stop people from setting fires, I would absolutely do that. (laughs) But that's, you know, just the reality is uh, if somebody does hit it, light a small fire and the park is five degrees hotter because of internal combustion engines heating up the park. It doesn't matter that it was, you know, it it, it is going to burn faster and more seriously. Have you talked to the park board about this idea or is it just at the petition stage right now? Um, I have. T- well, I, I, this petition only went out a few days ago and I have spoken with uh, with Tom Digby um, about this idea. He, uh, I saw him um, a few weeks ago, but I haven't attended a formal um, parks board meeting yet. But I'm, I'm hoping this is one of the solutions that they're that they're thinking about. Um, you know, just I, I don't know why we have to all, you know, always wait until we're in a crisis situation. In like if, if there was a fire in Stanley Park, that would cut off all park car traffic to the park you know until (laughs) it was dealt with which could be years right Um, Uh, I think it'd probably be dealt with faster than years with fire if if a fire started in Stanley Park which again has happened before yeah but not on the scale that we're looking at now like fire has changed Um, and if you look at the fires that are burning in you know just outside of Soyuz um, the fires, like all of the fires that are burning now, um, the, the climate science is pretty clear that because of the, the intense heat and the intense drought, fire is not like we knew it. Um, so we have to give up our old ideas of what a fire looks like and how easily it can get put out because we're dealing with a new, like a whole new climate and we're dealing with a new beast, um, the, the, the new fire. And so I do encourage your listeners to, you know, just do some research on, on um on fires uh, and how they are different now in, in 2023 than they were, you know, five, 10 years ago. All right, Jillian, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you coming on the show. Okay. And I will just say that we are looking at, there is a campaign going to Ottawa uh, called On to Ottawa. And they, one of their demands is to um, get a national uh, 50,000 person trained firefighting service. Um, that could be deployed and trained and, you know, cleaning up the forest in the, uh, you know, in the off season um, so that we can really mitigate these these effects across the country while we deal with these climate issues. So hopefully that'll that'll resonate with some with some people.
Time to talk a little real estate and Canadian housing prices in some area are falling with the rising interest rates. But looking back and uh, kind of assessing things over the last two years shows that there is still this upward trend. And there is a new report out. It takes a look specifically at the price per square foot and how things have changed there, especially when looking at single family homes. So joining us to talk more about this is Todd Shyak, executive Vice President with Century 21 Canada. Todd, thank you so much for being with us. No problem. Thanks for having me, Jill. Even uh, when we talk about prices falling a bit, uh, partly because of the rising interest rates, I think people will still uh, say, well, it's still pretty expensive when you're looking in Greater Vancouver, Metro Vancouver, uh, many parts of BC. What are we seeing, though, as far as uh, real estate prices and how that is being affected by interest rates? Well, the interest rates knocked down the peak that was the 2022 market. Uh, probably uh, the Bank of Canada got carried away um, uh, and stopped raising interest rates or started raising interest rates too late. The, uh, the peak hit 2022, but the prices today right across the board um, are still higher than they were in 2021. So the upward trend and, and the cooling has stopped. The, the price point in June is better than it was in Vancouver, in the lower mainland, and right across BC uh, from January. So the prices have slowed, or the, the prices continue to go up. Hmm. And is that for all types of housing, or is it different if we're talking about a single-family house or a condo? Uh, single-family homes have gone down more from the 2022 peak than than um, condos, but not by much. There's about a 17% drop in a price per square foot for a detached house in Vancouver versus a condo that was only down 1%. So there's, it really depends on the type of, of property you're looking at and the location in the, out in the, in the Valley in Chilliwack, prices came off quite a bit more. They came down 19% on a detached house. 15% 15% on a townhouse, uh, condos are only down 6%. But again, that's from the 2022 peak. The 2021 prices, we're, we've still improved over those price points. Interesting. And, and I know uh, this report, uh, this price per square foot report, also looks at the different regions and specifically looking in BC, saying that, yes, prices seem to have reached that cooling point, but we're still seeing some of the most expensive price per square foot homes in all of the country. We are. And, and that's what makes this price per square foot survey so interesting to read is for anybody, depending on their situation, whether it's a young couple or somebody moving down or, or if they're looking to get into their first home, what kind of a lifestyle do you want? Where can you get 700 square feet instead of 500? Where can you get a single family home with a, you know, a, a 2,000 square feet versus, versus in Vancouver, you'd be lucky to get something uh, half that size for the same price if you were to move further out into Kelowna, Chilliwack, um, the further out Victoria, for example, there's a, there's, we still see the migration when it, that started during COVID. There are a lot of people looking to get into the marketplace that are moving further out so that they can have that square footage and the, the home that they're, they were hoping to have uh, as a first time or even a move down buyer.
Hmm. And looking at uh, the changes and looking at the percentage change and, and from 2022 uh, to 2023, it looks like throughout BC, most places, there has been a, a decrease in, again, that, that price per square foot. But like you said, we're still seeing uh, some pretty expensive prices, especially if we're looking at places like West Vancouver, Burnaby, uh, Vancouver downtown, I, I guess the places where we would expect that. Yeah, it is. And, and when you're talking a thousand square thousand dollars a square foot in West Vancouver or downtown West Side, um, it is extremely expensive for sure. Uh, that probably will change when the zoning change happens uh, in BC or in Vancouver specifically. Um, and there'll be a lot more multifamily homes built on infill lots. Single family lots will now be four and five and six units. That's uh, that's the big unknown right now with what's going to happen in Vancouver specifically when uh, everybody's allowed to get rid of their single family home and put four and five units on the, on the lot. Uh, do you think that would lead to a decrease in the price per square foot or if we're talking about new builds and new housing and and some of those developments for people that have seen them when when uh, say uh, one house has turned into say two units and a laneway house, they still go for a pretty high price. They do, and and the only opportunity there, I think, is for, again, it, it boils down to price per square foot. You you might be able to get a, an 800 square foot or a 700 square foot laneway house at an affordable price point um, versus moving to Kelowna or over to Victoria and getting, you know, a 1,400 square foot house. So it, it really will boil down to what kind of a lifestyle, where you want to live, and what the expectations are are going to be of how big of a home you're going to have. Does this report, I'm not sure if it gets into this, but does it also show, like you said, kind of during the heights uh, when things were uh, maybe at their peak or were, were so expensive, and even if, again, using Vancouver as an example, 2022 on the west side, $1,421 per square foot. Uh, 2021, it was $1,200 a square foot. I mean, we were seeing listings and places going for even above that, I think, in some cases. Uh, have we seen, do you think, the end of that? Well, you know, that's, the, that's the, the unknown right now, Jill, because we don't know. The only limitation right now on the market in terms of the number of sales is the lack of inventory. There's a lot of people that aren't putting their house on the market because they believe that buyers are a little shy right now. And in fact, there are multiple offer situations coming in. They're not to the degree that we saw in 2022 when bids were 200 and $300,000 over list price. But it is a seller's market. Sellers can really maximize their uh, selling potential right now, especially if they're going to downsize, move into a condo, move further out. Um, it really is um, a, a seller's market. It continues to be. Hmm. And and like you said, too, with those regions and looking at some of the places in B.C., so not a huge surprise that there are no spots in B.C. that made it on to the 10 least expensive home price, uh, the highlights of this report. There are several uh, Vancouver and uh, Vancouver neighborhoods and the most expensive. But even looking at B.C. And, and something that you touched on, if you're willing to go a little further out, it's such a huge difference when we're talking still about the price per square foot, if we're talking about something like, say, Colombia or Chilliwack. Exactly. I mean, my family is a perfect example. I've got two. When my children entered uh, elementary school, we sold on, you know, in Kitsilano, we had a half duplex. 
we moved and upsized to a to a big house in Kamloops with a view with a triple car garage and a 70 foot lot and um, for a lot less than what we sold that duplex for in Vancouver. Now, my wife and I, with the kids in university, we very, very well may consider moving back to Vancouver and going into a condo, knowing that the size of our home in a condo environment is going to have to be much smaller than we've got today. So it's, uh, it's quite a, a remarkable transfer of people from the lower mainland further out over to the island and then back into a condo. It, uh, it really depends on the lifestyle that you're looking for. I would imagine, too, that what, what has also changed, and we've talked a lot about this, uh, the working from home and the fact that a lot of people are still working from home, there would be added to that mix as well. People that don't need to be right in the downtown area or close to the office if they're doing a hybrid work or completely working from home. Well, exactly. I work from the office in downtown Vancouver. Our, our head office for, for Century 21 Canada is in Cole Harbour. I get down there two or three days a week. Other than that, I work from home. And I think there was a real question mark you know, because there was a lot of companies and a lot of CEOs were railing against this work from home and they wanted people back in the office. But there was such pushback that I think that that work from home option is going to be there forevermore because we've proven it uh, in so many different verticals in, the, in, in different industries that you can be productive at home. And so that allows families the opportunity to be further out without having that gargantuan commute or even being in the office maybe more than a couple times a month. So it, it is that flexibility that will allow a, a couple or a, you know anybody to, to move to a, the home and the lifestyle, the square footage that they're looking for. And Todd, just one other question on this. And you started off, I know you talked as well about interest rates. How do you think that is going to have an impact as far as people purchasing, buying power, uh, people that may have mortgages that are coming up, say, in a couple of years with that rate still uh, close to or at the level it's at now? That, that's, a, that's the wild card because Bank of Canada and the government of Canada for the very first time have turned a blind eye to the 30-year amortization cap. And what we see right now is a lot of people renewing their mortgage or going on a variable rate, but keeping the same payment and then having a 70-year or 80-year amortization. And the government of Canada is okay with that because they've implied to the Bank of Canada or to the major banks that they are not to foreclose on mortgages, not to call in those mortgages, just let it ride. And so... There's a lot of people that are going to be uncomfortable when their mortgage comes up for renewal. We might see some of that inventory hitting the market. But for the most part, I think the interest rates, everybody's holding their breath, waiting for the Bank of Canada to have that one more rate increase in September. But after that, it'll probably start to come down. Second quarter of 2024 is what everybody is opining. And if that's the case, I think at that point, with another million immigrants, 500,000 per year, plus the millions of millennials that all want to get out of their parents' basement, um, there's so many formations of households. There's going to be uh, probably the craziest market we've seen uh, other than COVID uh, starting in Q2, Q3 of 2024. 
Well, we will uh, touch base with you, I'm sure, before then, but be looking at that as well. Todd, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate you being on the show. Thanks, Jill. Appreciate it. Well, as you probably know, as of tomorrow, Metro Vancouver will be in stage two water restrictions. So that means that there will be many measures taking place, whether it's at the park board level, the civic level and residents as well, being advised that they will need to follow those rules. Things such as aesthetic water features being turned off. Uh, There will be uh, watering of golf courses and playing uh, fields, but that will be in alignment with the approved water use plans so some changes coming as of uh, tomorrow <clears throat> as of tomorrow passive grass areas such as park lawns uh, park board saying those will not be watered so some changes coming joining us now to talk more about the effects of drought and what we're dealing with now is Dr. John Richardson a UBC freshwater scientist also a professor in the faculty of forestry thank you so much for taking some time today Hi, Jill. It's my pleasure. Uh, we've been talking a lot on this show uh, just uh, just before uh, talking to you about uh, Stanley Park in particular. Uh, there was a fire that was set in the Second Beach area. Uh, people are being advised that the fire risk there is very, very high. Uh, as an example, then, how does it? Uh, how does that uh, kind of play into what we're talking about with water restrictions and this fire danger? And have things really changed as far as dealing with these types of kind of forested areas in urban areas? Yeah, well, the um, drought um, has all sorts of different kind of implications. One, of course, is the forests are tinder dry uh, through most of the southern half of the province. And so Stanley Park, the Seymour fire a few weeks ago, you know, they're it, the, the reality is that everything is just so dry, and that's mostly a reflection of the fact that we haven't had any kind of um, precipitation for a couple of months now. The soils um, are just tinder dry. The water that was in the soils is draining away. Uh, it's draining into the streams, into the lakes, um, and out to the ocean, and there's really nothing left in the soils. So everything is, um, is going through this kind of drought scenario, and that's affecting everything from forests to human water supplies to uh, even fish in our streams, which is an emerging story because uh, the salmon are just starting to come back to spawn. So all of those things are related. Um, One of the things that people may or may not know is that most of the last 14 months, we've had well below average rainfall, and that does two things here. One is it means the soils were pretty dry to begin with. Um, it's also warm, which means there's a huge amount of evaporation. And, um, and the last thing in our reservoirs, when it comes down to the drinking water supplies, is that um, we don't have snow left. So the snow's all melted, and people might remember we had a relatively warm May, and most of the snow that we depend on for summer supplies into the reservoirs melted away very quickly. So what we have sitting in the reservoirs is all we've got, and that needs to serve over 2 million people for as long as we don't have rain. So that's where the drought restrictions come in. We have to start thinking about how do we slow down our use of the limited supply that's in those three reservoirs. Hmm. And it's interesting when you say that, because then thinking back, you could do kind of realize, yeah, it, what, there hasn't been a lot of rain. Even I know leading into June, there were calls, people saying, oh, well, it'll probably be another January. We'll get the colder temperatures and the rain. But even that didn't really materialize. Uh, but then we've also had events. Uh, atmospheric river is a relatively new phrase. We've seen some of those uh, throughout the year as well. How does that all kind of work in or fit in with this picture? Of, of how things are changing as far as the, the precipitation we're getting or not getting and these hotter temperatures. 
Yeah, um, I'm not a climatologist, so I won't go too far into that. But but you're right; those are all related. So one of the things that's happening is that because the the planet is generally warming, the oceans are warmer. There's more heat there, which means we get more intense storms. So those uh, atmospheric rivers, nobody used that term five years ago, um, and now we're all really familiar with it. And so those kind of extreme storms um, are a consequence of our changing climate. And it may be that the longer dry seasons that we're starting to experience in Vancouver are also uh, related to that same sort of shift. Um, we're getting to the stage where the jet stream is mostly going uh, to the north right now, and it's pretty much locked into that pattern, And which means we're not going to likely see rainfall for some time to come. But if you talk to somebody who lives in the northern part of B.C., they're getting drenched. And so we have these very different things going on in different places because the weather patterns, the weather systems kind of shift in a way that becomes very stable and hard to shift uh, elsewhere. So we're not likely to see rain uh, anytime near future, and that's unfortunate. Um, I I know we all like the the sunny, dry weather, but um, the reality is we need rain. Hmm. I know you're also, uh, as I mentioned, a professor in the Faculty of Forestry. And this is a question that has come up a lot as well. And and again, going back to Stanley Park, but certainly there are other uh, forested areas in BC, whether it's the pine beetle infestation, Stanley Park dealing with the looper moths. Does it change how we need to look at forests as far as forest management and the fuel for these wildfires? Well, around urban centers, we do need to think about the fuel supply. And that is one of the things that governments are working on and researchers as well is trying to figure out how to reduce the local fuel load so that if you did have a fire uh, near uh, an urban center like we've just had in Asuyas, um, that it doesn't just run straight into the city. So the people are thinking about how to do that. Um, but of course, that's not so simply done because uh, one way you can do it is just not to have trees and things growing right beside your house. Um, but we all like to have a bit of a shade tree. So, so you know, we kind of defeat ourselves in that way because we know that shade trees are really good for, for urban dwellers in terms of reducing the, the heat that we experience um, uh, locally. So so we've got a couple of different things going on. Um, with the forest management side of things, um, there's not really a huge amount you can do in the short term. In the longer term, um, there are calls for trying to do different uh, ways of forest management. And um, and uh, again, don't want to go too far into that, but there's um, one of the things that we have tended to do over the last uh, 50 years or more is when we plant forests, we plant them all at the same time. So we have all of these young trees that are, are really in dense plantations, so to speak. And, and, and plantation is the wrong word because we don't have monocultures. But you, you have all these young trees that are growing up. They're really dense. And it means that some of the trees are not going to survive. And those stress trees um, also become uh, fuel very easily. So things like that can be dealt with. Um, but there's a lot that we do need to do. And it's all from the local level right out to the forest industry. And when you mentioned the reservoirs, that we're kind of limited to what is in the reservoirs until there is more rain or more water is added, why not look for a way to have more reservoirs or to have a bigger water supply? Yeah, well, it it depends exactly on where you are. But in Vancouver, we have three uh, reservoirs. So we have uh, Capilano, Seymour and Coquitlam, which produce really high quality water because those forests that surround them um, are not used for forestry anymore. Uh, They were historically 30 years ago. They actually did forestry in those watersheds. And so that led to issues with fine sediments getting into the water supply. 
And Coquitlam, in fact, was actually a BC Hydro um, power production station up until fairly recently. And so it's only recently we've actually had access to that for drinking water supplies. But if one starts to look around and think, where else could we get water from? The the reality is either we have to raise the dams, which would be very difficult in our urban setting here, um, or we might have to look further up the valley. And the next one that one would come to would be Stave Lake. Um, So Stave Lake out by Mission. And... um, but it's also a BC Hydro uh, power station right now. So, um, so we'd have to look out there. The other source of water, um, which I don't think anybody would look at, is the Fraser River. Um, and during the summer, Fraser River, um, a, it's a major conduit for all sorts of industry, for fish and all sorts of other things. But it's also incredibly turbid. Um, so very muddy looking in the summertime. And that's natural for the summer. Um, but it means that we'd have to have an enormous amount of water treatment. So that's not a likely source either. So while we think we're surrounded by water, a lot of it's just not accessible in terms of seawater or the Fraser River. And so we look to the mountain reservoirs um, for our supply. But if we are um, more careful with our use of the water, um, and Metro Vancouver says we're using over a billion liters of water per day for the two-plus million people we have in the lower valley. So hence we come to these drought restrictions. And one of the easiest things to do is to ask people, don't water your lawn. Um, it's really hard to sort of monitor anything else. Um, you know, one of the things they're saying is, well, have shorter showers. But uh, it's not like the government can go around and check on that. So um, hope not. So it, yeah, hope not. <laughs> exactly. So you know we have to do that voluntarily. And so what we really need to do is is to raise public awareness that every drop helps. And um, it may seem like a little little thing for taking shorter showers. You know, talk about not running your tap during uh, brushing your teeth and all that sort of stuff. But when you multiply that out by two million people, um, it actually saves huge amounts of water per day. Um, I don't think there's any risk we're actually going to run out of drinking water by the end of the summer, but um, last year kind of scared us a little bit, I think, and um, we need to be thinking more long-term about um, doing better with what limited water supplies we've got. Right. And like you said, too, it doesn't feel like it makes a huge difference. So I can see the the end of, of stopping lawn watering, which is going to be part of the stage two restrictions coming in tomorrow. Uh, maybe washing cars, even filling swimming pools, which isn't actually part of these restrictions. But those are things that it seems you can look at that and say, yes, that's a lot of water. We can stop doing that. But it doesn't feel like you're doing a lot if you are simply turning the tap off when you're brushing your teeth or that shorter shower. But like you said, multiply it and uh, it I suppose it does make a difference. Yeah, it really does. So even for one minute in the shower, that's almost eight liters of water. And um, if everybody shortened their showers by, say, two minutes, we would actually save the equivalent of about 10 Olympic swimming pools worth of water per day. So that's a huge amount of water that we we use, um, you know, just to bathe in. And, of course, that same water supply is used for drinking, cooking, bathing, flushing. And remember, it's also used for firefighting, which brings us back to fighting fires in Stanley Park and places like that. That's using our domestic water supply. Um, in Metro Vancouver, or at least in Vancouver, we have a saltwater system, but that's really only for emergencies like earthquakes. So right now, they're using the same water supply we're using for drinking. So saving water by being conservative with our uses of it means that there will be water to fight fires. Hmm. Which is very important, as we all know. Uh, one other question, and, and I know that you look at this as well as, as fresh water, but I, I think we don't think about it so much, and that's those the streams that you might see in your neighborhood, depending on where you live, those kind of urban streams and, uh, and, and 
in different parks and different areas. How concerned should we be with those streams drying up? Well, I, I think my experience, um, having worked in small streams for most of my career, is that they're mostly dried up already. Um, so there are a few that are still running. Um, fortunately, there's usually a little bit of water that's sort of trickling along underneath. So at least some of the smaller organisms, the, the worms, the, the insects are still doing okay. But, um, you know, anybody who's walked by their local little stream lately has probably not seen a lot of water. And, um, you know, if they look at it and think, where would the fish live? Um, there's not many places for that. So as you get into bigger streams, of course, they're still flowing. Um, but still a lot narrower and shallower than they should be. And one last thing with that is that um, when you get smaller volumes of water, um, it, it heats up much more quickly. So anybody who's boiled water in a kettle knows if you fill it up, it's going to take a long time. If you put in a little bit, that same amount of electricity will boil it really quickly. And so in our streams, we're having small volumes of water, which means less habitat, but it also means it's going to heat up more, which um, is really not good for things like our, our salmon and trout. All right. Uh, good words uh, of advice and uh, reminding us why we are doing this and why it is important and why these stage two restrictions will be in place as of tomorrow. Dr. John Richardson, thank you so much for your time. Uh, you're very welcome. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till three on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.